from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Author Jeff Schauer will be in Columbus on Wednesday, June 3rd with the Thurber House Evenings with Authors series. More information about that can be found on our website at www.crafttheshow.com. All 14 of his novels have been New York Times bestsellers, extending all the way back to his first Gods and Generals in 1996. Welcome to Craft, Jeff Shara. Thank you. Well, uh, that's uh, that's a long string of bestsellers. I congratulate you on that. That's quite well, an accomplishment. I appreciate that. And Fateful Lightning is your latest. It is the fourth and reputedly the final installment of your Civil War series. Yes, it is. Tell me about uh, that book. Well, the, the book is, uh, it, it originally there was going to be a trilogy. And my publisher likes trilogies. I think all publishers do. I'm not sure why. They can put them in a box or something. But I realize in doing the history of the war in the West, uh, starting with Shiloh, then Vicksburg, then moving through Chattanooga, you simply can't do it in three books. In fact, I could have done six books, and they weren't interested in hearing about that. But it made sense to wrap it up, and this was always the goal, to wrap up the story with the consistent character through the entire series, which is Sherman. Sherman's a marvelous character, and he's a great deal of fun to write, uh, obviously, He's a controversial character, particularly in the South, um, and I'm sort of curious how this book is going to be received in Atlanta. But uh, (laughs) the the concluding story, Sherman from Atlanta, the march to the sea to Savannah, up into the Carolinas, which is the true end of the war. I mean, we've celebrated recently the 150th anniversary of Appomattox as though, you know, Lee surrendered to Grant ends the war. That's really not the case. The war goes on for another two and a half weeks before the surrender Joe Johnston surrenders to Sherman in North Carolina, and it's a story that, for that reason, a lot of people simply don't know the story, and I I enjoy doing that in general, is telling you a story that you sort of think you know, you learned a little bit about it in school, but you really don't know. And again, Sherman, the character, is just a great deal of fun to write. Mm -hmm. What is there that's fun to write about, Sherman? What is it that attracts you to him? First of all, there's all the, the myths, and I ran through this with Grant, I mean, with Lee, I mean, you go all the way back to George Washington, I mean, there's all kinds of mythological stuff that I like getting rid of. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, Sherman is, and, and again, there are opinions differ on this, um, but I, in my opinion, Sherman is the finest American general of the 19th century. And if you were to, you know, compare him to the 20th century, I mean, a good comparison probably is George Patton. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of similarity in their personalities, which again is one reason why he's a lot of fun in the same way Patton is fun. They're profane, they're vulgar, they're down to earth, and they get the job done. And they understand, I mean, Sherman is the guy who really teaches Grant, his superior, about the concept of total war. I mean, if you think about the Civil War, by the time Sherman gets in a position of authority, the war has been going on for almost three years, and nobody seems to know how to end it. I mean, nobody seems to know how to make this horrible thing come to a conclusion. He understands you have to make everybody hurt. And that's civilians as well as soldiers. And that's a radical concept. That, that, that never happened before. It works, and that's why it's a good story. Mm-hmm. So when you're researching something like this and you're researching uh, Sherman, there's a wall, a huge amount of information. 
um, which I think is good because on one hand you you can bury yourself in the details and learn all about it, but on the other hand, uh, it's got to be bad because or or difficult because there are many people who are extremely interested in the Civil War who may be looking fishing for possible inaccuracies in the books. How does that work for you as an author when you set your sights oh. on a, a story as big as Sherman's? You're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of people out there looking over my shoulder. That's what it feels like sometimes. I respect that. I mean, people care enough about all of these characters, whether it's Robert E. Lee or whoever it is, to get the facts right. I mean, if you start playing fast and loose with history, um, the book loses credibility and deserves to. And so, yes, I am painstaking in the research to get it right. And for that reason, I rely on diaries, memoirs, collections of letters, the accounts, if, if the particular character didn't write his own memoir, and in the case of Sherman or Grant, they did, um, but there are some, Robert E. Lee, for example, did not write his own memoir. You have to rely on the accounts of the people who were there, the people who heard the conversations, who knew these people personally. And that's the only way, I mean, someone said to me, how dare you put words in the mouth of Robert E. Lee? Well, okay, your challenge accepted. If I dare to do that, I had better believe that the words I'm using are accurate to the character. And, um, you know, I'm taking you with me and putting you into the character's head. That's a risky thing to do. And again, if I don't get it right, you'll know that immediately. So that's the biggest challenge is to do the research to get to where I feel like I know the person personally. And my job is just to tell you what I'm seeing and hearing. And when that happens, it's a marvelous, marvelous experience. Mm-hmm. Now, people, like you mentioned some of the autobiographies, and I think uh, Grant in particular wrote his under a uh, particular duress because uh, I think he was uh, financially needing this thing to sell and sell well, if I remember correctly. I'm not, I think that he... Well, not only that, he was dying of throat cancer. Right. And which is duress all its own. And right. and his publisher, and we're very fortunate this happened this way, his publisher was Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. And Clemens actually helped Grant finish the book because Grant's health was failing. But it was, it was Twain who said to Grant, I will guarantee you, your family, that you'll have half a million dollars from this book. Well, then Grant could at least rest easy because then he knew, you know, he would know that his family was taken care of. But, you know, the combination of financial problems as well as, you know, failing health uh, made it very difficult. And I have to say, to stick my own opinion in here, I think Grant's memoir is the finest memoir written by a U.S. president. Go figure. I mean, who knew that Ulysses Grant was actually a good writer and would tell a good story? Well, now, do you think that's because he was uh, a good writer or because Twain had some maybe ghostwriting involvement in it? Is that how do you... It's, it's possible. I mean, yeah. nobody really knows. I mean, there's speculation all over the place. I know, I mean, I'm, I'm very confident that, that Twain did not write it um, and did not ghostwrite the whole thing. Certainly he might. And he was an editor. I mean, that, that's what he actually what he helped Grant do. So Surely he cleaned it up and made it a little bit smoother than it might have been. But at the same time, I just love the fact that, you know, look where Grant was in our history. Look, look, you know, look what he participated in. And he tells you about it. And he, you know, he doesn't hold back in telling you what his opinions are of certain people. And, and um, I mean, that's, that's, for me, for research, that's the perfect source. Because, there's, I mean, there, there are no holds barred. There's no political correctness i mean he tells it the way he feels it that's invaluable to me mm-hmm. uh can you still get a hold of grant's um biography is that still uh easy to get is it on sale 
places? Oh yeah, extremely curious. easy. Okay. Um, it's in the public domain, and I mean, you can you can literally go to most bookstores that have a decent history department or Amazon, and and get the, the book without any problem at all. Okay. How much for difficulty was it for getting the rest of them? Are there people that it was really difficult to get their uh, writings, their autobiographies? They've fallen out of well, favor. I would say starting when about the time I started working on Gods and Generals, there was such a resurgence of interest in the Civil War because of Ken Burns, because of my father's book, The Killer Angels, the film Gettysburg, based on that book. I mean, in the early 1990s, there's this huge upsurge in interest in the Civil War. So a lot of the obscure, out-of-print, um, you know, rare uh, memoirs suddenly come back into print again. And so nowadays, I mean, you can start searching online and you can find all kinds of stuff that 30, 40 years ago simply didn't exist. And as you sort of mentioned earlier, um, there's almost an embarrassment of riches when you come to, to researching the Civil War because there's so, there's so much good material. Uh, at some point, you just have to stop and say, okay, I've got enough because, you know, you could research the rest of your life. So it's actually a fairly simple process now to gather a really good library of original sources okay now you mentioned your father's book uh killer angels and uh the movie that was made from that gettysburg and you've had your own experience getting some of your uh books made into movies uh, tell me about that experience for you as an author watching something that you've written morph onto the stage in your case i think it was the love of the game well, for, no, for a lot of the game was my father's oh, book, although I was, my, my father had already passed away when that book was published. And so I worked with Universal Studios and actually Kevin Costner, who's in the film. Um, and so I was there. I'm actually in the movie, which doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> it's fun. But, uh, no, my, the, my book that was brought to the screen was Gods and Generals, my awesome. first yes. book, um, which is the prequel to the Killer Angels. So it, it, it goes before Gettysburg and, uh, and ends right where my father's book begins. That was an eye-opening experience. I mean, and most authors who dream of having their, their books made into movies, um, they get faced with a, with a very different reality when it happens. And unless you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, where you have all the clout in the world, uh, I found out very quickly that I had no clout. <laughs> and uh, the, I love to hear authors say that they're going to maintain full creative control over their book. No, you're not. <laughs> That's just not the way it works. Okay. So what kind of, uh, uh, to maybe expand on that a little bit, what sort of things did you see changed? I'm not asking uh, to you know, to speak negatively, just things that you said, oh, well, this is different when it's told as a movie than as a book. Uh, what did you, well, what kind of things did you, did it get altered? Yeah, I mean, I can, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, I could go on for hours about this. I won't. Um, one of the things I learned very quickly is that any screenwriter has his take on your story. And they're not going to simply take the book word for word and translate it to the screen. First of all, a lot of things work on the written page that just don't work on the screen right. and vice versa. Uh, and, you know, that, that was fairly obvious going in. What I did not expect is that my story, which covers five years, which is a challenge all by itself, you know, for putting that on the screen, but my story would, you know, virtually disappear um, for long stretches. The movie is about 15% of my book. Um, and I don't know what happened to the other 85%, but I had nothing to say about that. But, I mean, again, that was a, that was a surprise. 
and every screenwriter is different. Every, I'm sure every writer who's had a book made into a movie has had a, either a similar experience or a radically different experience. It just depends on who you're working with, what the demands are of, of the screenwriter, the director, the, uh, the, the studio. Um, but again, it was, a, it was an educational experience for me that you know, I would be very cautious about doing again. Okay. Now, in addition to Civil War novels, you've written books about the American Revolution, the Mexican War, World Wars One and Two, and you're developing a book about the Korean War. So yes. what interests you in uh, conflicts, say, as opposed to maybe times of economic turmoil or great social change as a writer? Well, if you look at... What, if you look at you know, what I'm writing is character-driven stories. I mean, this is not a and one thing I, I sort of bristle at when someone describes my work as war books. They're not war books. They're books about people who happen to be at war. And the reason I think that there's some appeal, and, and not just they're not just testosterone. This, this isn't John Wayne and the guys in the black hats. Um, it's much more that. You know, these are ordinary people because they're primarily American based stories, or at least many of the characters are Americans uh, in every story. I mean, if you think about what we are as a country, um, you know, generals are not bred to be generals. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, Patton, uh, Robert E. Lee, Grant, these people were not born into, you know, some kind of aristocracy. They rose to the occasion. They, they were ordinary people that responded to an extraordinary circumstance. Well, what's more extraordinary than being placed in the middle of a war? where, you know, somebody perhaps is trying to kill you, or it's your job to kill somebody else. There are very few things that will bring out the true character of a human being than being put in that kind of a situation. Once I sort of understood that, I realized you can go all the way back through history, and, and you don't have to stop with America's wars. Go back to Napoleon, go back to Caesar and Alexander the Great, and just keep going. This is true throughout, you know. People rising to the occasion, how they deal with conflict, how they deal with life and death situations, in many cases, that makes for a really good story. Okay, fair. Fair enough. Um, on your website, then, as I mentioned, you also say that your next book is about the Korean War. You've spent the last four on the Civil War. Tell me about the shift to the Korean War. It's a very you know, different time, uh, much more closely to related to our times. How was that like as a, a research experience or uh, writing about it or starting the writing? Well, first of all, from the research point of view, I've been very fortunate because, for, I mean, there's an enormous wealth of, of material, particularly from the American point of view. Uh, but also, I was, I was really lucky to stumble into the memoir of a Chinese soldier who's a, a POW in an American POW camp. I also have the memoir of a North Korean soldier. I mean, that's gold to me right there. So I can at least tell you, you know, give you a perspective from the other side, which is crucial to every book I do. But beyond that, I mean, once the research is done, the problem that I have, the challenge, call it, is that Korea does not have a happy ending. I mean, this is not like rah-rah, the boys come home and big parades in their honor. I mean, the war, in effect, is still going on. I mean, it's, there was never a peace declared. And so it, it's a little bit different than having this, you know, joyous conclusion or even a sad conclusion and what I'm and the way I'm dealing with that is I'm picking out a smaller story in other words I'm not doing the entire history of the war which 
covers four to five years. Uh, but in fact, focusing on a smaller story, going from, say, Inchon to the Chosin Reservoir, which, you know, these are names that most people don't know at all, or if you do know them, maybe you've heard of them. But for the soldiers who were there, the Marines, this is one of the most horrific experiences any Americans ever had in warfare. And a lot of those veterans, and they write me all the time, a lot of those veterans are, you know, they, they say, we're getting older too. You know, we're, we're, there's fewer of us every day, just like the World War II vets. Somebody needs to tell our story, and it really hasn't ever been done the way so many World War II stories have been done. So I'm very excited about that. And, you know, I just need to find the voices, who the particular characters are going to be, and then by this fall, I'll be writing, and it'll be probably the end of next year. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that, uh, when I saw that on your website that made me think about is that um, the Korean War has sort of this interesting standing in popular culture because uh, it's represented, I think, for most people by MASH. Um, right. And uh, I can't, the funny thing is, is I can't think of any other conflict that has had, say, a long-running television series that focused on it. Um, there was uh, China Beach, but that was this. I think that was right. the same era. But there's no Vietnam long-running series. There's no series about any of uh, like a civil war, or the Revolutionary War. There are mini series, but uh, it made me wonder: is there something in particular that led to? Was it just the circumstance of getting good writers for that particular show, or do you think that there's something about that era uh, that lent itself to uh, television, or is it just all a surprise, a happenstance? Actually, no, I think much more it's the era that the TV show, when the TV show came out, came out starting in the early 1970s. Well, what else is going on? The Vietnam War. MASH, in my opinion, MASH is much more about Vietnam than it is about Korea. Now, it's yes, obviously it's set in Korea, and they tell you it's Korea. But the attitudes, the haircuts, the, the sort of back talk to the generals, all of this kind of stuff never would have happened in the, in the early 1950s. So that, the TV show clearly is a product of its time. And by the 19, by the early 1980s, when the show goes off the air, I mean, and, and I know there are a great number of fans of the show, and I'm one of them to a certain extent. I appreciate good writing. But the sanctimony, the sort of holier-than-thou attitude about the army, about the military, um, becomes a little heavy-handed um, throughout, because the military is out of fashion in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, you know, the, uh, anybody who wants to be a soldier is sort of looked at, like, what are you, some kind of fascist? I mean, I lived that growing up in college and so forth, where the ROTC guys were laughed at, made fun of. Um, that's the era that that show emerged from. And I think things have changed a great deal since then. And, uh, you know, that's one reason why I really want to get past all of that and just tell the story of what happened to a certain number of individuals, a small group of guys, here's their story, this is accurate, this is the history, and, you know, leave the comedy, I mean, there's real comedy, I mean, you have to laugh, there's all kinds of funny things that happen in, in, re, in the real life, without sort of imposing television's idea of comedy on the story, and so that, that's my hope, anyway. Jeff Shaw, I thank you very much for talking to me today, I really look forward to your visit to Columbus on June 3rd with the Thurber House, Evenings with Authors, and you'll be talking about your book, Fateful Lightning. So uh, welcome to uh, Columbus. Uh, welcome to a return visit, I believe, to the Thurber House for you. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. 
For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. Be creative.